0: All right, Exodus chapter 12, we are starting a new series this morning even though we're still in the same area of the Bible and I love, for me I love it because as the, at at the beginning of our church, I mean we just launched in September and so here at the kind of outset of my preaching career here at Neighborhood Church in Lakeland. I love that we are spending time developing, You know, as I like to keep saying it, developing the lens through which we are going to look at Scripture. And the story of the Exodus is so foundational to understanding the entire arc of redemptive history in the Bible. Um, it is a it's not only a demonstration of God's power. It's not only the beginning of the uh, Jewish nation, the, the nation of Israel. It is, it is also like there are so many pictures and symbols and shadows of what will happen when Christ comes. And so what we are going to attempt to do over the next um, uh, let's see five or six weeks is is look at look at symbols in the Passover story. And, and then when we get to Easter, we're going to be connecting all of those symbols to the passion story. And it is, it is amazing, it, is, it has been really amazing, and it's continuing to be, to study Exodus right next to Matthew um, and, and to see this. And, and why Matthew of the, of the Gospels? Matthew is the one that if you, want, if you want to know what Jesus said, Matthew is the one to go to. If you want to know what he did, you go to Mark. Um, if you want to know how uh, a Western person would understand that, you read Luke. Um, if you want to know how he uh, felt about it, read John. Um, it, it is interesting to, to kind of think of it that way. But Matthew is primarily known as like, it is the Semitic gospel. And so if you want Jewish symbolism, Matthew is the one. And, and so as we look at Passover and the symbols of that that are echoed again um, in, the, in the Passion Week of Christ... Uh, Matthew is the one we're going to be going to, um, but we're going to be in kind of continuing to lay the groundwork and the foundation for that this morning, and um, this series is, um, you know, we're still going to be obviously in, in the text, we're going to be primarily in Exodus chapter 12. It is a little bit thematic, and it, which is a little bit different than how we um, often preach. Often we have a passage and we work our way through that passage and pick it apart and and I preach that way. Um, this is going to be slightly different as we go through this series. We're going to be looking at themes like the firstborn, the blood, the lamb, um, and, and different symbols like that that we see in, um, in the in the Passover story. And so I want to spend a minute before we read the text, because I think it will help before we read it, to talk about the firstborn. And that's, that's kind of the theme of this morning's message why is it so significant why is it so important the firstborn you know as we look at the 10th plague in Egypt that plague is the death of the firstborn and and of course the the way by which that can be um, avoided why the firstborn why is that so significant why couldn't it just be a a, a child in every house or uh, you know whatever you know A random offspring, I mean, who knows? Firstborn, particularly firstborn sons, held a, in the ancient world particularly, a very high level of importance in their society. I want to be really clear. Some of the symbolism in the Bible is the way it is because it reflects the way things were. It's not necessarily a... um, a stamp of approval or condoning on the way things were. Now, I, I think that that doesn't necessarily apply here in the firstborn, but while it may be true that many ancient cultures placed a higher level of value on sons than daughters, I personally have a vested interest in uh, the idea that sons and daughters are equally valuable. Also, in all fairness, I mean, they say, you know, your sons, you're going to raise them, and they're going to grow up, and they are going to have their own families that they're responsible to care for. And your daughters are the ones that are going to come back and take care of you. I'm, I'm not worried. <laughs> I am a girl dad. That is the hand I have been dealt, and I will gladly play that. Um, and as my father-in-law always kindly reminds me, where there are girls, there will be boys. <laughs> But the, the firstborn son held a very high, um, high degree of importance in ancient culture, and and I, I don't think it's I don't think that is entirely lost in our world today. But most of the significance is um, we know uh, even as recently as the, the British the British Empire had the no Commonwealth we say Commonwealth um, the, you know the, the, like the law of primogeniture. Was was the uh, was literally a law in the in in the in the British Empire that if 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 someone of importance died, well, really anybody, if anyone died without a will, it was already settled legally. The estate, the family business, everything went to the firstborn son, Um, and that that comes from Deuteronomy. in the ancient world, um, a, an inheritance would be split up um, by the number of children plus one. And why plus one? Because the firstborn son would, have, would be given a double portion of the inheritance. So if Jacob had 12 sons, which he did, the inheritance would have been split 13 ways. And the traditionally the eldest son, but in this case it was Joseph since he you know, kind of saved the whole family, um, received a double portion. That's why in Israel there is not a tribe of Joseph. There is a tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh, which are Joseph's two sons. Double portion. Um, the wealth would be split with Jacob and Esau three ways. The firstborn son had the birthright of two of those shares. The younger son got one. And so I, I want you to understand um, that, that there was... There is great significance. Now, I also want to explain why that is, because it can feel like, well, yeah, they were pretty backwards back then and you know, um placed a higher value and you know, all this kind of thing. Uh it doesn't seem particularly fair that the one son, just by virtue of the fact that he came out first, should receive this double portion of the inheritance. But here's the thing: when the firstborn son when the father passes away in the ancient world, the firstborn son assumes the role that the father held in the family. It is the firstborn son, son's responsibility now to care for his mother, his widowed mother, and any unmarried sisters. That's in addition to his own family. He's going to need additional resources to care for them. Also, so that, the, so that the mother isn't like now all of a sudden this uh, dependent uh, of someone else necessarily completely, the family business that the father had built will continue on because the firstborn son will inherit that. The land and the, the livestock and the, you know whatever the family business was, the firstborn son continues that. And in effect, in a, in a, in a way, the firstborn son is the continuation of his father. He is the continuation of his father's name. He, is, he assumes basically the reputation of his father in that. And so it's, it's important to recognize the firstborn son had an extremely important role, and there's a reason he got that double portion. He was going to need it. He was responsible for more people and in more ways. It's, it's neat the way that even in God's law in the Old Testament, when you look at that, look at how the vulnerable are protected and cared for and provided for. Um, Another thing that was really interesting, um, before God gave the law which established the Levitical priesthood from the tribe of Levi, the firstborn son would assume the role of priest for the family. That that gets really important. We're going to come back. We're going to circle back around to that. But the the firstborn son would assume that role of priest, and then when he took over for his father um, after his father passed away, then you know as the he is now the spiritual leader, patriarch essentially of the family, even the extended family. The imagery. Uh, and 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 then uh, I I'm trying to lay all of this before we get to the text so you have a lens um first born among the livestock i mean if you if you just set out on your own and you got a handful of sheep and you're trying to like build a flock the first born ones are are like kind of important because that's your you know your first step to um Building an actual business or flock or, you know, enough to feed your family with. So to, to lose the firstborn, the first round of offspring from your livestock, is just hitting the reset button on that again. It sets you back a year or at least a breeding season or whatever with that. It, it is costly, particularly if those firstborn ones are really good stock. Um, there, there's a lot of significance that we really don't have the time this morning to fully flesh out. All of the nuances of um, the 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 children born in your youth, and 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 all of the different different things that are are spoken of of firstborns in in the Bible. But can can we just admit that for those of us that are parents, we don't have favorite kids? Please tell me. No one has favorite kids here. That's uh, just read the story of uh, Jacob and Esau and all like it's it's a it's a recipe for family dysfunction. Don't have favorite kids. But the firstborn child taught you more than the others did most likely. You learned how to be a parent with your firstborn in a way that you know later on you kind of applied those lessons. That's why often the 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 the, the first round of kids to you know live under the iron fist of mom and dad and then the uh, the younger kids get away with murder you know We're learning, okay? Just, kids, you didn't come with a manual. Um, If you did, we'd all have this figured out. And so the, the firstborn just holds a special place in your heart and life. You've known them the longest. They taught you the most. And I don't know, they're just special. No kids are replaceable. Okay, let's be clear about that. But you'll never have another firstborn. And so as we, as we head to the text here, I, I want us to, to like, just have in our minds the value of firstborns, especially the firstborn sons in the ancient world. And now as we read um, read chapter 12 of Exodus, and it is a little bit long, uh, but stick with me and let me wet my whistle before we do. <clears throat> and actually, let's open in prayer. Um, before we approach God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it contains such truth, and if we are willing to put in the effort to understand it through the lens that it was written, there is such deep truth and meaning in it. There is deep truth and meaning in it, even when we approach it with no knowledge of the context, but, oh, God, with, with, with the context that is just incredible, the depth and the riches of your mercy and your love for us, God, help us to see that. Help us as we study this season the, the, the first redemption of slaves in the Old Testament. Help us to see more clearly the redemption of our slavery from sin. God, give us understanding as we read your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you'll follow along with me, Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as the statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats, What is leaven? From the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you, and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders... Of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel, and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the egyptians but spared our houses and the people bowed their heads and worshiped then the people of israel went and did so as the lord had commanded moses and aaron so they did and at midnight the lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of egypt from the firstborn of pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon And all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Go up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, go and serve Yahweh as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So that they let them have what they asked, thus they plundered the Egyptians. The people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, plus women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened. Because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. We'll stop there. Um... So much symbolism in there, and, and over the next few next weeks we 're going to talk about we 're going to talk about the, sim, the significance of the lamb, the significance of the blood, the significance of unleavened bread that seemed like kind of a big deal um, and, and i 'm looking forward to that, um, but this morning, as we as we talk about the firstborn it is it is hard for us to understand and um, and i, I don 't feel like we really, we're going to have have really time to um, You know what we we, we need to we, we need to. In in um, you need this lens. Chapter thirteen, verse one. The Lord said to Moses, "Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine." And and, and he he provides a way. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. This is more what we um, should have spent our time reading. We're going to read it. Why am I apologizing for reading more scripture? What's wrong with this pastor? As if what I have to say is more important. Then Moses said to the people, we're just going to read uh, 16 verses here. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from the place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when Yahweh brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Uh, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. "'On the seventh day there will be a feast to the Lord. "'Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. "'No leavened bread shall be seen with you. "'No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. "'You shall tell your son on that day, "'It is because of what the Lord did for me "'when I came out of Egypt. "'And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand "'and as a memorial between your eyes "'that the law of the Lord, Yahweh, might be in your mouth. "'For with a strong hand, Yahweh has brought you out of Egypt.'" You shall therefore keep the statute at this appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and to your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord, here it is, all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck Every firstborn of men among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time your son, and when time to come your son asks you, "What does this mean?" you shall say to him, "By a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And when Egypt stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb." But all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark, as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Okay, here's why all of that is so important. We're going to rewind. Okay, God, God, God demands, God puts this demand on the people All the firstborn are mine. They belong to me. And and, and if you want to keep them, you got to buy them back from me, either with a sacrifice or, or with. uh, You'll see later in Deuteronomy. We're not going to go there this morning. But you know, like you, you like either like literally pay money, um, or you consecrate them to the Lord for His service, or with the animals, you either buy them back from God with sacrifice. Or you don't keep it. You break its neck and that's it. It does not belong to you. All the firstborn belong to God. Man, that seems kind of harsh, kind of heavy, kind of like almost cruel. Even look at, the, look at the, this whole plague where he just slaughters the firstborn of the land, man and beast. You can make the case men are sinful, but what do the animals do? We have to be careful because it's easy for us in our Western thinking to think, I don't know if that's, um, you know, good. As if we have ground to stand in moral judgment over God, like he's wrong in some way. Okay, well, we have to know God is good and he is right. And so it's important for us, if we don't understand it, to search the scriptures and understand the lens through which to view it so that it does make sense. And here, I believe, is the lens. Let's rewind to a very difficult story. We don't have time to fully um, explore the nuances of, but the binding of Isaac, when Abraham is willing to offer Isaac on an altar of sacrifice. In the story of the binding of Isaac, Abraham would have understood that sacrifice was necessary for more than just a show of fealty. God is holy. And in his holiness, he cannot be approached by any who are not also holy. God's wrath burns justly against sin. And as we see modeled in the Garden of Eden and with Noah, a sacrifice temporarily satisfied God's wrath so that a sinner can approach him in prayer. This idea of propitiation is central to the Reformed doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. That is a substitute that takes the penalty and atones for your sins. From the Dictionary of Reformed Tradition, it says, This view is not intended to portray God the Father as full of wrath in contrast to the loving Son who pacifies his angry Father. It's not that. Rather, it is because of God's love for the world that the Father sent his Son to be the propitiation for sin. By this means God is both just and the justifier, preserving his holiness and love without compromising his character. We're going to dig into this more, but like we've got to see that in God's holiness, he is perfectly within his rights to demand anything. We are not worthy. We don't deserve better. God is not being unfair or unkind to us no matter what. He is so holy, and we are so undeserving of his presence. If he were to snuff out your life right now, as a sinner, is he not just? You, a sinner, is he as holy, not just? Because God is holy and just, he cannot be approached by sinners. But because God is loving, Long-suffering and merciful, he provided a way for us to call out to him in repentance. Sin must be punished and consistent with God's words to Adam and Eve in the garden. Sin rightly costs us our lives. It is essential to grasp the sinfulness of sin if we are to grasp the concept of sacrifice. Without that lens, stories like the exile from the garden, the binding of Isaac, the 10th plague, the Levitical sacrifices, and Christ on the cross all seem like the cruel machinations of an angry, vengeful God. But if we view sin rightly, we quickly see how justified God would be in the purity of his holiness to snuff out our lives the very moment sin entered our minds. For how could we even consider tarnishing the image of almighty God by engaging ourselves in sin. Romans 6:13 says, "Do not present your members as sin, your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness." How could we even imagine such wickedness? Yes, wickedness. Even the slightest shadow of sin, whatever it may be, is an affront to God. And diminishes his glory as reflected in his creation that he made most especially with his own hand and his own breath. Instead of representing his glory, I'm sorry, diminishes his glory as reflected in creation through us, his image bearers. Think of how it misrepresents our creator. That those among his creation that he made most especially with his hand and breath, instead of representing his glory and carrying his praises to all corner of the earth, engage our minds, our voices, and our bodies in all manner of self-gratification. With our twisted nature, our very existence is an offense to God's holiness. Even before a baby commits a single act of sin, the very fact that his heart will incline towards sin as he grows puts him at odds with his creator. Sin is not just an action. It's not just, I did some sins. I am a sinner. The problem is our identity is twisted and warped, and, and it tarnishes the image of Almighty God. Yes, God is holy. Too holy for us to even comprehend. Not holy in comparison to one who is less so, but the holiest of holy. He is the very standard of holiness to which no other can ever attain. And so we must rightly view ourselves, not only of deserving uh, as deserving of His righteous judgment, but as the most deserving. Think about it. Nothing else in creation has failed to obey its Maker. Nothing else in creation has raised its fist to heaven and claimed that God is a lie or that he's not good or that he is withholding from me the good life or that he mistakenly put me in the wrong body or that he has no right to tell me who to love or what to do with my money or how I ought to worship him. Nothing else in creation does that. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims above his handiwork. No, it is only we, who are made in the very image of God, who think we can compete with him for glory and seek after our own desires. And even as we stand condemned, he is worthy of all our praise because even in judging us, he would be demonstrating his perfect holiness and justice and therefore deserves all the honor and glory because none is like him. Even if there was no way for us to be forgiven and be made right with him, he would be worthy of our praise for punishing us because it demonstrates how holy he is. And yet, and yet, it is this very truth that makes possible another truth. Another attribute of our God is that he is merciful It is his mercy that allows us to continue to draw breath even after we've sinned. Mercy is withholding punishment from one who deserves it. And that mercy cannot be appreciated without a right view of how much we deserve the punishment that's being withheld. In God's mercy, he allowed Adam and Eve to continue to live outside the garden. In God's mercy, he allowed Noah and his family to be spared the annihilation of the flood. In God's mercy, he allowed Jacob's sons to live even after selling their brother into slavery and bringing tragedy upon their father. There's no end to this list, but in God's mercy, he allows you and me to continue to draw breath long enough to see our own brokenness and use that very breath to call upon him in repentance. God is also gracious. Grace is unmerited favor, a gift undeserved. In God's grace, he gave Noah boat-building lessons. He gave Abraham and Sarah a son, and then a ram as a substitute sacrifice. And he gave the Israelites a way to keep their sons safe. And then he gave them a land with cities already built and farms already planted. And he gave his son, Jesus, as our substitute. In his grace, he promised Eve that a rescuer would come through her someday. And he made a way for us to be right with him. He didn't have to do that. He would have been perfectly justified to punish us all for our own sin. But he describes himself to Moses later in Exodus in this way. Yahweh, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious Generations. God is so many things. But the way he chooses to describe himself to Moses is all in terms of how he relates to us. Instead of reminding Moses of how holy he is and how undeserving Moses is of his attention and presence, he tells for the first time, he tells him for the first time of how he is merciful patient, loving, faithful, and just. But how can all of those things be true of the same God? If he is too just to clear the guilty, how then can he forgive sin and iniquity? If even children are guilty of sin by virtue of the fact that their fathers were sinners, then how can we have hope? When God speaks of his faithfulness, he is talking about how he always keeps his promises. He made a promise to Eve, that he would bring a rescuer. He promised Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him. He would later promise David that one of his descendants would be king forever. And here's where we circle back to the firstborn. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God the Father gave his Son as the substitute sacrifice for all of us. He is the Passover lamb. He is the Levite son that takes the place as priest for all others. I don't think I, I fully explained that. When, when God gave the law, this whole thing where the, the firstborn son became the priest for the family... When, when God set up his nation of Israel and gave them a law which would organize how they governed themselves, he said, now instead of the firstborn son from everyone everywhere being consecrated to me to be the priest, the Levites are going to be your son's substitute to serve me. The Levite sons will be the substitute that goes between you and your family and me. Now we read in Hebrews, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. He took that place. He's the Levite son that takes the place as priest for all others. He's the son of David that will sit on the throne forever. He's the son of Abraham through whom all nations can find the blessing of salvation. He is the one promised to Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. Colossians chapter 1. Verses 15 to 18 says he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Amen. By being described as the firstborn son, the only begotten of the Father, Jesus' sacrifice holds so much more significance. Even though we literally could not be less deserving, God did not withhold heaven's best from us, redeeming us from slavery to sin and death. He purchased us out of slavery with his own blood. He, he essentially purchased the nation of Israel out of slavery with the blood of their own firstborn sons. And he purchased us from slavery to sin and death by the blood of his own son. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So now we have to ask some real questions as we close. In light of all this, in light of our sinfulness... In, in view of God's holiness and Jesus laying down his life to redeem us, does God not deserve our first and best? We didn't have time to even go into all of the laws in, in Deuteronomy where they are commanded that the, first, the, the best of the first of all their crops is given to the Lord to provide for the Levites. I mean, this was a situation where if nobody got paid the levites got paid why because because the, the the priority system set in the law in the old testament was that your relationship with god is the most important part of your society if you even if you starved to death that's more important that you are right with god is more important that you have a channel of communications Communication open to God is more important. Now, fortunately, consistent with God's character, that was not His will that everybody grows their food and gives it to the Levites and then starves to death. God um, has this funny way of providing for people, particularly when they follow His way. Does God not deserve our first and best? Can he not insist on his people practicing rituals that would continually remind us of what he has done for us? In in the New Testament church, we are given a new covenant by Jesus, a new covenant in his blood, and we do this in remembrance of him. We We practice the ordinance of communion where we regularly gather together, we break bread, we have, the, we have the, the, the fruit of the vine and the unleavened bread that reminds us of, of the Passover, reminds us of all of that, and the fulfillment of it in Jesus on the cross. Is he really unfair or unkind when he takes a life? More importantly... Have you accepted Jesus as your Savior and Lord? He's done all the work for you to be right with God, but have you believed in him? Have you stopped trusting your own goodness to save you or even help save you or keep you saved or whatever? This whole firstborn thing, I mean, we could do an entire series on it. We could probably have a college class Class on it, but that's not what we do here. That's the time that we have for this morning. But I I hope that this gives you a lens to see the place that Jesus holds in the universe. The, the, the whole idea that he is the the firstborn son, that he is the the firstborn of all creation, he is the only begotten of the Father, does not mean he was a created being. It doesn't mean that God made him first and then like let him be God. That that is totally inconsistent with Scripture. It doesn't mean that he um, he had a, a beginning or, or, or whatever, or that he's under like God the Father is really God and Jesus is kind of God. It's not that. No, it helps us understand if we understand the whole firstborn thing. Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is me. I and the Father are one. In a culture that understands the way the firstborn effectively is the Father, that makes sense. We've lost so much of that. He is the first and best. He is the one deserving of all the inheritance. He's also the only Son. It's all His. This lens is so important as we look at redemptive history, as we look at our own condition, and as we look at what Jesus did for us. As we look at what the Father did when he gave his only son. I'm going I'm to close now. Um, if you want to bow your heads and, in prayer with me. I'm not, I'm not going to give an, an invitation and ask you to raise your hand or come forward or whatever, but... Um, But if this is something you've never understood before, I hope that um, I hope you're seeing it clearly, even if it's for the first time. We are so unworthy. In light of that, we have been given so much. How can we not prioritize Him in everything? God, thank you so much for Your Word. Thank you for the reminder that we can't earn any of this. We'll never deserve it. and you're giving us your son for the forgiveness of our sins it actually has nothing to do with whether or not we deserve it. In fact, Your glory is magnified in it because we don't deserve it. Thank you for making forgiveness possible through that incredible gift. May we accept it. And may we never think that you're unkind or unfair or undeserving of our first and best. In Jesus' name, amen. (music) you <music>